You're listening to Igniting Imagination, a podcast to spark the spirit within you from the leadership ministry team at Wesleyan Investive and Texas Methodist Foundation. This season, host Lisa Greenwood, co-host Gil Rindle, and special guests from diverse theological perspectives discuss what core values and truths to carry forward and include in the new emerging church. What values and truths will you carry forward? Join our weekly email, contact us, and find more resources from Leadership Ministry at tmf-fdn.org. Hi, friends. I'm Lisa Greenwood, back with my co-host for this season, our good friend and colleague, Gil Rendell. Welcome back, Gil. Hi, Lisa. Here we are again. Uh, We get a chance to have uh, just wonderful conversations, and I'm looking forward to it. Yes, me too. Me too. So just a reminder, in this season, we are exploring themes from Gill's short paper called Jacob's Bones, which is available for free on our website, and that link is in our show notes. So Gill, something we talk about a lot at TMF um, and the Wesleyan Investive is the difference between the work of improving and the work of creating. In your paper, you note they're both playing the short game. So I want to dig into that a bit, but let's start with talking about the work of of improving and the work of creating. So can you say a word about that? Uh, Sure. Uh, This is uh, a distinction that I've made a number of times over the last years when I look at uh, the work that I've been involved with and the work that I, I watch so, so many other people do. And so it seems to uh, move in two different directions. One is is the work of improving. That would be established institutions, established congregations who are continuously working hard to learn better, to, to learn how to get better at what they already know how to do. And so that means, you know, congregations that are really working hard at attracting people, at, of being a very hospitable to people of marketing themselves to people of of preaching of teaching of programs of managing and and maintaining their ability all those things that that we do as an organization we have worked immeasurably hard at getting better at in in many cases because it's a harsher uh, environment for congregations to live uh, in these last years and so they've had to get better if they're going to survive. And so that work, quite frankly, from my perspective, has really gone well. But alongside of that, there is this other subset of work that is has been starting up that has more to do not with improving, but of creating, of, of learning how to do what we don't yet know how to do. Clearly, our, our congregations do not fit comfortably into the current American culture. That's been happening for a long time, and, and it's been happening to a lot of other institutions as well. Right, sure. And so it, re- it raises questions. Um, you know, if the form that we have now is not culturally comfortable, what other forms are there for us to be who we are and to do what we do? How else do you do congregation? How else do you become a community of faith? How else do you even build community? How do you put into action a behavior, what we say we believe, if it isn't comfortable to do it in, in the, the programmatic ways that we've done it in the past? That so, we already are familiar with. Yeah, right. exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, uh, and I think that's what the Wesley Investive has been doing so much work with uh, people who are already, you know, uh, 
knee deep into trying to create new ways and experiment with new ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, My only point there was that uh, I think it's helpful if we can at least see that there is a difference in the kind of work that is being done Mm -hmm. and that they're not in competition with each other. They're in fact, uh, different, totally different responses that are are both necessary for what we're trying to do. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you've been helpful for us in realizing that there are different kinds of uh, leaders needed for those different right. kinds of, of work. Right. There are no. different resources needed for that work. It, you know, it's um, that's been really helpful for us. So you point out that, that both of those are important. You, you do not diminish the importance. In fact, you say that's, that's really important work. And you say that they're actually the short game, that the longer game is this deep institutional work that you're talking about in terms of Jacob's Bones. So will you say a word about that? Uh, Sure. Uh, Let's talk about the short game first. You know, as important as the work of improving and creating is, um, it has a bit of a short uh, shelf life to it. You know, improving, learning more about what what we already know how to do. We've been doing that improving work for about 40 years now. And, uh, you know, part of me wants to argue, we probably learned as much as we're going to learn about that. I mean, we're, we're down to just fine tuning the very end of it, uh, you know, because the culture has, culture has passed us by with so much of that stuff that, you know, we've gone through the church growth, the redevelopment stuff, the strategic planning, contemporary worship, measuring vitality, Zooms, YouTube. We've gone through so much stuff, all of it good. I never want to say it wasn't, I mean, it's, it's what's helped us to be Christian community without, and live in a changing culture without being too syncretistic. Mm-hmm. But that means it's, it's a short game now. We're not going to get a lot more out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, the creating, this is the entrepreneurial stuff. And, you know, historically, if you look at uh, entrepreneurial times in our recent American history, uh, most of those entrepreneurial entrepreneurial ventures have about a, a, a five to a ten year lifespan. This is really hard work. This is trying to birth something brand new. It's often born out of a single person or out of a small group, uh, you know, who, who struggle over the long haul to, to um, sustain it. Uh, people have to reinvent structure. They have to reinvent governance to do it. Uh, it's difficult to fund. Uh, you get the feeling it's exhausting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So, you know, a lot of the entrepreneurial creative stuff that's going to happen, that is happening right now may not be the long haul into the future, but boy, is it teaching us the steps along the way. See, this feels critical. So keep going. Well, <laughs> keep going. I mean, <laughs> that was the end of my sentence. <laughs> okay. <No. laughs> well, <laughs> well I, that piece right there feels really critical because it, when you say it's the short game, it doesn't mean it's not important. It, on the path of the long game, you play the short game and you learn from it. You right. listen to it. You right. So you do these experiments, these entrepreneurial efforts that may not last long into the future, but maybe that's not the point of them, right? The point is to discover and to, you know, how do we form community? What are we learning about our neighbors? What are we learning about ourselves? What is the gospel? How is the gospel showing up? How's the Holy Spirit showing up in this space? And all of that is part 
is a vital part of the long game. And so, you know, part of what I was saying was the long game is really institutional. Uh, you know, and, and all I'm doing here is, is setting up a third category. You know, one is improving, one is creating, and the third is institutional. Well, by that, all I'm trying to say is that what really is critical is that whatever we have learned and are learning has to be reset into an institutional form. Institutions are, are amazingly critical to us as a people. We are formed by institutions, not only as individuals, but we are formed by institutions as community. And as we move into the future of our American history, there is not a time that we have needed our institutions more. Uh, Walter Brueggemann always said there were two questions that the people of God always had to ask at every step. And that is, how will we now be with God and how will we now be with one another? And those are the questions that our religious institutions answer. So we need them. But what we need is how do we form something that carries the truth of that institution into the future? That's the Jacob's Bones question. What is the real treasure that we have to be able to carry as an institution that will help us to understand our relationship with God and importantly, help us to understand our relationship with one another so that we don't assume we have to live as a divided people, as a polarized, as a balkanized, as a tribal people, but that we have some sense of all being all being birthed under the creative hand of God. Mm -hmm. And so this institutional work is going back to remembering what is it that we're trying, what is the, what is this treasure that we're trying to build something around so that it's the treasure we move ahead, not the form of whatever we're doing. Yeah. Right there. It's the treasure, not the form. It's the, it's what's at the heart, what's at the core. I, I, I confess that every time we have these conversations, Gil, I have to do the mental gymnastics around the word institution. Oh, yeah. Because I still think of it as the organization, the structure. And and I know that's not what you mean. And I know it's a call to get to the heart, the core. And I love this work because I feel like you have just so, so clearly defined the work that is before us now. Um, I'm just, I'm just confessing that I have that word is so ingrained to me in the organization and, and not the heart. Right. And so so, what I do realize is as I'm going farther into this conversation and into the work that's, that's related to it, I am trying to uh, differentiate between uh, the organization of the church and the institution of the church, Mm -hmm. the organization being the form and the institution being the treasure. And I'm yeah. finding it myself to be an awkward language, yeah. but, <laughs> sure. but I, I mean, it's one way of trying to remind ourselves at this point. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to remind us the question that's at the heart of Gill's paper is what are the bones that is those core truths, values, practices that will rest at the center and be the foundation for a new organizational institution of the church that is emerging. Right. And so, so we really are talking about what's at the heart. And that's what all our conversations in this season are, are leading us to that conversation and that discovery. So our guest today, I think, really um, help us to get at that conversation. The, and I'm so excited for you to hear 
our conversation with um, Father Greg Boyle and Reverend Justin Coleman. Um, but first, let's share their bios. And so, Gil, will you share Father Boyle's bio and I'll share Justin's? Uh, sure. Gregory Boyle is an American Jesuit priest and the founder of Homeboy Industries in Los Angeles. And it is the largest gang intervention, rehabilitation, and reentry program in the world. Uh, I think it's important to realize that as we get into the conversation, that um, yeah. this massive organization that is behind him. He's received the California Peace Prize. He's been inducted into the California Hall of Fame. In 2014, the White House named him the champion, a champion of change. Mm -hmm. Father Boyle has received the University of Notre Dame's 2017 Leter Medal, the oldest honor given American Catholics. He's the acclaimed mm -hmm. author of Tattoos on the Heart and also Barking to the Choir and uh, now has a third book, The Whole Language. And just to reflect the way he lives his values, all the net proceeds of his book goes to the homeboy industries. And Justin Coleman is senior pastor of University United Methodist Church in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. He has also served as the chief ministry officer for the United Methodist Publishing House and as lead pastor of Gethsemane Campus of St. Luke's UMC in Houston and also at the SMU Wesley Foundation and in other college and youth ministry settings. Justin is one of our dear friends at TMF, and he's one of our facilitators for the Courageous Leadership Imperative Initiative out of TMF. Um, and he's also our connection with Father Boyle. And so uh, he and Father Boyle have been friends. Father Boyle has been a mentor to Justin for years now. They've collaborated together a number of times. And Justin really lives out of the radical kinship that he learned from and has experienced in Father Boyle. And so we asked Justin to join us for this conversation, and we're so glad we did. So Gil, what stood out for you from our conversation with Greg and Justin? Well, I, I think that this is probably one of the richest conversations I've ever been in, uh, mm -hmm. in which you could think about, you know, what uh, an organization does and what an institution does. Because, you know, again, I want to pull up that context. We, we're talking to someone who is the founder of the largest gang intervention, rehabilitation, and reentry program in the world. Now, think about that. How much doing is going on? How many programs are online? How much, you know, how much effort is put into providing things for people? And Father Boyle didn't talk to us about any of that. He didn't name any numbers right. of what he was doing or what the programs were. He didn't talk about what they were doing. He talked about what they were being. And so he was talking Sorry. from the very beginning, not about the organization that, that he has helped create, but about the culture that he has helped to create. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he talks about, you know, you don't provide services to people. You provide relationship. Yeah. Uh, he talks about what people need, and he ends up talking about kinship, tenderness, and joy. I mean, this has been a delight. Uh, you know, it, it really is a conversation. And he draws us over and over back to the heart of, of God, back to the heart of Jesus. And um, in a way that, I, that, that really pushed even how I see who God is and who Jesus is. I mean, you'll hear this, you all, as you listen at the beginning when he talks about 
God, not as the object of our praise, but as one who deflects uh, praise and it, uh, de- kind of a decentering of God, which is mind blowing to me in a way. But but it is absolutely um, a, a beautiful conversation about who we're called to be, how we view God, how we view each other. Let's listen to our conversation with Justin and with Father Boyle. Greg and Justin, thank you for joining us. What a gift and a treat to be able to be in conversation with you today. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. So many of our listeners are pastors serving in local congregations. And so I'd love to start, Father Boyle, with um, hearing your call story and, and, and really how ultimately you started what is now known as Homeboy Industries. Well, you know, I'm never sure what a call story means exactly. You know, I Fair mean, uh, so I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I believe in Jesus and I believe in the God of love and I'm a Jesuit and I work with gang members. So I don't know which how you want to slice that, but but I'm 50 years a Jesuit. So I, I was drawn to the Jesuits, you know, because they were hilarious and prophetic and I liked being around them. And and so it was one of those I'll have what they're having kind of. Moments. Nice. <laughs> and so then that happened. And so uh, and then, you know, there are always vocations within a vocation within a vocation. So, sure. you know, I went to Bolivia and it just not for any particular reason, maybe to learn Spanish. I didn't know what I wanted to do for a living. And I was ordained a priest in 84. So I went to Bolivia right after about 85, I guess. And it changed my whole life. I I just uh, wanted to work with the poor. I felt like there was some kind mm. of, uh, that they were our trustworthy guides to lead the rest of us mm. to the kinship of God. So I wanted to be around them. And so I was supposed to go to Santa Clara University and it was kind of not enough for me to run an immersion experience for students there to kind of, you know, introduce them to, uh, you know, standing at the margins, I guess. But, but then I, I just felt like, well, you know, I want to, I want to work with the poorest community we have. So I went to my provincial and he sent me to Dolores mission. And so, so then the rest is sort of history, I guess, but, and and historically, you know, you know, initially it was about the undocumented, and mm-hmm. and working with so many folks who didn't have papers, and uh, and then it was burying kids who were being killed mm-hmm. in gang violence. So, so vocation within a vocation within a vocation. So, so now I've been doing this for, you know, thirty eight years, I suppose. That phrase, trustworthy guides into the kinship of God, what, say more about that and what that has, how that has unfolded for you. Well, you know, I always uh, talk about the widow, orphan, and stranger, and and that they're identified by God in the covenant, you know, as I have loved you so must you have a special preferential care and love for the widow, orphan, and the stranger. And, and the why of that is because God thinks these are the folks who know what it's like to have been cut off. Hmm. And because they've had that kind of particular experience, it's for that reason that God thinks they're trustworthy guides. 
mm. to lead the rest of us. So then it, it changes our stance at the margins and with the poor. It was It's not like I've come to save the day or I'm going to fix you or I'm going to save you or rescue you or even help you. But then it, it turns it on its head. It's like, oh, no, I, I'm going to be reached by you mm. and I'm going to receive who you are. And I'm going to um, somehow allow my heart to be altered by you. And then when you do that with what I would call exquisite mutuality, then everybody is inhabiting uh, their true selves and loving. Everybody is inhabiting their own dignity and nobility in each other's presence. You know, it's funny, this morning I, I was praying over the, um, you know, sing joyfully, and was in the first reading, and uh, and the gospel was, you know, my soul magnifies, you know, the greatness, and and I was just had this overwhelming sense that that God and Jesus are so humble that they don't want it to be about them, hmm. and nobody believes that <laughs> because because we project onto them what we would want if we were God or Jesus. We would want mm. it to be about us. And, you know, that's welcome to the human race. I want it to be about me. And so I presume and project that God wants it to be about him. And, and, but if once you start to imagine that God and Jesus are self-effacing, that they're mm. humble, that they're always pointing up beyond themselves to kinship, and connection and it's a no it's not about me it's about you then suddenly that's liberating i think so anyway that that was something that stayed with me this morning as i was praying that that we don't really believe that god is as humble as i think god hopes will understand that god and jesus are but because we always just we think that it's it's like hostage taking that somehow god and jesus want us to just praise them when God is hoping that we'll engage in the praise, the only praise that God has interest in, which is creating kinship and connection with each other, that you may be one, in other words, mm -hmm. I think. But what do I know? <laughs> well, Greg, um, <laughs> I, I think we're going to assume you know an awful lot because you're, um, <laughs> you're saying it, don't, but, don't but you're living it. Well, there was something that was, uh, that was uh, catching me immediately when, when you were talking about um, uh, your own history there. You said, I wanted to work with the poor. And then your next sentence was, I wanted to be around them. Now, I think that I probably grew up in a church that thought it was supposed to serve the poor or it was supposed to somehow make their world better or that we were to make uh, develop programs or provide services. But I don't think my church taught me a lot about wanting to be in relationship with them. And yet when I hear you talk about the kinship and I hear you talk about your story, uh, you start with the relationship, and then if it, it turns into something later, that's fine. But, you know, have we got it backwards? Well, you know, it, it, the Jesuit kind of slogan is um, men and women for others. And then they, they changed it. They said men and women with and for mm. others because they wanted to, to, to make sure that it's accompaniment, you know, and that it's uh, mutual and... And so with, you know, 
to be with, you know, even work with is, is clumsy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But to walk with, and, and how do we walk each other home, you know? And, mm-hmm. and it's selfish. I mean, I, I, I want to stand with the poor because I'm selfish, you know, cause I know that that's where the joy is. Mm-hmm. So St. Ignatius has a, a, a meditation called the two standards and it's, and it just says, St. Ignatius says simply, see Jesus standing in the lowly place. And, you know, it's about seeing Jesus, and it's about choosing to be Jesus. And it's also about the lowly place. It's not, Jesus isn't standing away from the lowly place and pointing at the lowly place. Get over to the lowly place. No. And he's not even saying, hey, join me in the lowly place. It's just see Jesus in the lowly place. Mm-hmm. So then you discover, oh, the lowly place is where the joy is. And the invitation is never to grim duty. It's always to joy. My joy, Mm -hmm. yours, your joy complete. It's always joy. We don't get that because we think it's, it's hostage taking and, 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 oh my God, God, I, I can't stop saying God because the person holding me hostage insists that that's how I do it. No, it's about joy. Here's where the joy is. We're being pointed to joy. So see Jesus standing in the lowly place is really, above all, an invitation to joy. Not to sacrifice, you know, when Jesus says to the rich young man, you know, he looked at him with love and he said, you know, sell everything. And so all, Mm -hmm. all we focus on is bank accounts and sacrifice. But really what he's trying to tell them is, hey, the lowly place is where you want to be. Not because it's a should, but because it is where the joy is. And that's where you want to be. So I think about where you live and work. And I think about how we might, those of us who don't live and work where you are, paint the picture of gang violence and and even poverty and such. And I, I'm holding that picture and I'm holding this invitation to joy. And I would love for you to speak about what it looks like on a daily basis to invite into joy and into kinship in the midst of where you live and work. Well, this morning I had the thought for the day, and so I was talking about how, you know, um, all that's required of us is to pay attention because paying attention uh, returns us to the present moment, which is where we're saved. Mm-hmm. And we're only saved in the present moment, not three weeks from now. Yeah. And so, mm-hmm. you know, in recovery, they'll say one day at a time, but I think that's too long. <laughs> you know, I think it's really <laughs> one breath at a time. So how do you choose to cherish with every breath you take? It's really hard to do. That's what our practice is. You have to work at that. And all of us, our experiences, we, we keep have a lingering hope that whatever decision to choose to love is a once and for all thing. And it isn't. It's with every breath you take. So in order to do that, you have to really pay attention in the present moment. We're we're always getting ahead of ourselves. Mm-hmm. We're anxious about tomorrow. We're 
were lamenting what I did yesterday. Ouch, why did I say that? And as opposed to staying anchored in the present moment. So I, I think that's where the joy is, is happening right now in this moment that has never mm -hmm. been in the history of the world and will never happen again. So we want to be um, connected to, to, to that. Even as they're making so much noise out in my lobby, <laughs> <laughs> somebody, came by and, somebody just came by and pounded on the door, and I said, "I'm not going to turn and look at it." Whoever's <laughs> <laughs> knock, knocking on the door. Uh, so when folks come through your doors, I mean, what is their vision of God or their understanding of who God is and how God works in their lives and? And what's the work that you are doing with them to help them embrace kinship and joy and what you're describing? Because I suspect hostage is a little closer to what they might imagine <laughs> than, than joy. I'm just guessing. Yeah, I mean, they're they're like, like all of us, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, part of the thing is, you know, people, people have been critical of me, I guess, you know, in terms of faith and God and stuff. How much time do you spend each day at Homeboy, you know, praising God? Somebody asked me that once. And oh, I said, I said all damn day, you know. Yeah. <laughs> every moment, every breath. I think, I think that's how it yeah. works. And so you're trying to invite people to the marrow of the gospel, as St. Francis of Assisi called it, by by living it as as faithfully as you can, you know. And, you know, that somebody, the other day I read a translation of, you know, the end of, you know, the, the reading in Corinthians that you always read at weddings. And, and instead of love never fails, it says love never stops loving. Mm -hmm. And I like that way better as a translation, just because mm -hmm. you're not talking about failure or success anymore, which is a trap. You're just talking about love never stops loving. Well, I, I have a sense that the four of us hear that and we, we kind of say, yeah, that unlocks a door, mm -hmm. you know, because now it's not about being successful or failing at something. It's just, I don't know what to do. All I know is I'm going to try to cherish with every breath I take, knowing that love never stops loving. And I'm not going to care about anything else. So if you do that, I think that's God's hope. Mm -hmm. Not that we win the argument or bring people over or convince anybody to believe that Jesus is their personal Lord and Savior. No. And, you know, I, I my friend Mirabai Starr, who I recommend as a writer, and she always says, uh, once you know the God of love, you fire all the other gods. <laughs> well, I think that's what maturity looks like. You know, we're, we're every day I feel like I'm firing another God mm -hmm. and handing them their last check and say, no, I, yeah, I won't be needing your services anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think that's good. I think that's healthy. That's as it should be. And I think that'll probably end in the graveyard. So, and that's not once and for all. Every day you go, wow, how did that God get in here? Slip you know? in here, right? Yeah, <laughs> and you go, that's it. You know, he slipped in uh, without me knowing it. Yeah. And and then that's why you stay 
anchored as much as you can to the God of love because it puts first things recognizably first, which is hard to do. I don't think any of this is easy. <laughs> well, I, I think it's, um, it's not easy. Uh, but I also think that um, I'm, I'm hearing you talk about kinship and tenderness and joy, <laughs> knowing that you're in a situation that may want to call grief and pain out of you. Uh, at one point I, I saw where you had said that you're now in an area where there's uh, 120,000 gang members, 1,100 gangs. Uh, you're in an, in an environment in which, um, uh, in which the joy that you're talking about doesn't seem to live on its own. So how do you balance the two? Well, yeah, I mean, everything's a struggle, you know. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. You know, it, it, it's just you, you try not to be taken to that place, you know, mm. and and the place where you're defensive or frightened or aggressive or angry or it's it's a constant thing. I mean, just before I joined you, you know, we, we had kind of, you know, it, sometimes people aren't wrapped as tightly as as you would hope and you hope they will one day be. Mm. But, you know, and people get belligerent. I just had somebody do that with me, you know. And and you kind of want to go, well, okay, what does this behavior mean? Oh, it's it's an indicator. It's a language. Don't take it personally. It's not about you. It's about the pain the person is in. Mm -hmm. You would think after 38 years I would I would have that <laughs> under my belt. I don't. You know, I start going... It takes you to the place and pushes those buttons and and you catch yourself on a good day you catch yourself so that they you know nobody's being a jerk they're just in pain and it looks like jerk when mm -hmm. they're in pain yeah, yeah. that's all mm -hmm. they're just wounded they're just wounded and uh, and but as society we want to punish wound mm -hmm. instead of heal it and yeah. uh, and so you you can't very well invite people to a larger love if you're not willing to, you know, not to demonize or ostracize or otherize or create a them when there's only us, really, there's only us. I mean, I find like the Uvalde, uh, Texas thing is so, it, there, I watch it on TV and I, I, it's just the most unspeakable grief that you can almost not get near it. It's like a, it's like a, mm -hmm. it's like a furnace that you just can't get s too close to it because you'll get scorched. And then you try to wrap your arms around the grief, and you realize, wow, my arms are too short for this kind of grief. It's just that huge. Yeah. And yet, you fire all the gods all the time. Mm -hmm. So you know the only thing that stops a. Uh, a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Well, the God of love doesn't think there are good guys and bad guys. There don't, there's no good people or bad people. It's just God's people. Mm. Okay. Or I, uh, Huff Post had a columnist who was saying, why are we even talking about the shooter and how he was bullied and he had a lisp? And I, he's a monster is what mm. this columnist said. I go, well, all I know for sure is that God does not share that point of view. That's the only thing I know for sure. Mm -hmm. 
So then you're firing gods because yeah. you want it. You want to stay as close as you can to the God of love that, that understands that everybody's in pain and how do we love each other into wholeness and uh, how do we stand as, as anchored as we can be in the notion that loving never stops loving. Mm. And there is no us and them, there's just us. We belong to each other. Everybody's unshakably good. Everybody. There are no exceptions to that. Now, mm. people have a hard time seeing their goodness and living from their goodness for a wide variety of reasons, from mental illness to trauma to pain to wound. How do we, none of us are well until all of us are well. How do we help each other? How do we walk each other home? How do we mm -hmm. love each other into wholeness? So it's not about hate. It's about health. Mm -hmm. And if it's about hate, then it's us and them. And, and then I have to otherize and I have to demonize. Well, Father Boyle, I, um, I want to come back to healing if I could for just a moment, because Whenever I take a group to Homeboy, this is one of the things, this idea of, um, of how, how is it possible for uh, Greg Boyle and for the staff at Homeboy not to be caught up in a constant cycle of desolation, you know, for the struggles, for the losses, for the pain that, that people are in and I mean, you've been talking about healing quite a, a lot as of late in, in writing and, and elsewhere. And Homeboy for me feels like so. My boys, one of their favorite superheroes is Wolverine, uh, and and the character of Wolverine, he heals almost as quickly as he's wounded. So this constant process of healing uh, that um, is his chief superpower. And healing uh, seems to be a chief superpower at Homeboy Industries in that for me, one of the things that I, I think might be the case is that people aren't caught up in desolation because healing is ever present and healing uh, seems to come quickly at Homeboy, at least from the, uh, from the, from the outside. Can you say just a, another word about how healing might help uh, that cycle of desolation? move out of the cycle of desolation? Yeah, I, you know, I think it's important. You know, I never say that I'm a healer. I never say that I heal. I never say that I transform people's pain. But I say healing happens here. Transformation happens here. And it's a way of acknowledging that it's the culture that heals and it's the relationship that heals, knowing that everybody holds a piece. So, you know, Miguel Lugo, who's the security head of security, is a homie, big, huge guy. And he's he does what he calls uh, sidewalk therapy. And he's always, it's, it's the relationship that heals. So everybody's giving a dose. You're, everybody's administering a dose. It's not like you walk into one office here and that person is going to hand you the dosage that will heal you. No, it's, it's, it's everybody has a dose. Get a dose here, then go to that class and get a dose there and laugh with somebody who you used to shoot at. Get a dose there. So it's the relationship that heals, but it happens in community. It's a culture that mm. cherishes 
And I don't know how else to do it except in community, that it's, it's got, I don't know, a group effort, I suppose. But are, do people help? Yeah. But it also relieves you. It keeps it from becoming about you. I remember once somebody, I was in New Orleans and a guy who works with youth, and he says, I have saved, uh, he had a number, like 3,000 young people. And I kind of went, yikes. <laughs> and I thought, no, 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 you haven't. And stop that. <laughs> it's, it's like, it's not very helpful to even think in those terms, you know. Fire that God. Tandem <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> is, is pink slip or whatever that's called. Uh-huh. You know, it's like, no, you don't want to do that. Or like a PBS reporter ended an interview and said, how does it feel to have saved thousands and thousands of lives? And I go, oh, my God. Not for a second have I ever even entertained a notion like that. And that's not false humility or something. I, I know that's not true. I know that's not how it works. But if we're all loving and create a place where people feel cherished, where they feel safe and then seen and then cherished, that's not sign up to see the one person who does that. No. The whole place does that. And and how do you how do you kind of create that place? You know, I go across the country and everybody does the same, they deliver the same menu of services. And and we could name them, you know, anger management and uh, GED and whatever it is, you know, job training or character building, whatever it is. Um but I like to think that our secret sauce here is, is just the primacy of the community. Mm. That what's secondary are the delivery of services. Mm. Yeah, we'll get to that. We do all that stuff too. But it's secondary to the culture that cherishes. That's primary. You know, and you can bring in people who know how to deliver services, but I'm not that interested. You know, it's kind of interesting because... You know, uh, in terms of leadership, you were talking about leadership earlier, and and it's like, you know, if, if you did a search, oh, for example, the CEO who runs this place, when the moment comes when he wants to step away, and that's not me, I'm the founder, but I'm not the CEO, you know, I would be so opposed to a national search only because yeah, you could find people with credentials and expertise, but the hardest piece is getting the culture. Mm-hmm. And that's why you, you want it to be homegrown and you want it to be somebody inside. And people might go, oh, no, that's terrible. You should have a national search. I go, no, it, it's really easier to have somebody who gets the culture to come up to speed and and learn all the expertise about budgets and I don't know what else. (laughs) But it's really hard to get somebody in who's an expert to really understand in the marrow of their bones what the culture's about. So Mm -hmm. I don't know, that's how important the culture is. 
Well, I think that uh, in some way you're framing the dilemma that we're trying to face into here because uh, so often, um, and again, our frame of reference is congregations. We work so much with congregations, with communities of faith uh, in different forms. But in some cases, uh, it's as if they have not gotten the culture, meaning not gotten the culture of the gospel, not gotten the culture of the of the faith community itself. And they turn themselves toward uh, activities. They turn themselves toward services. I suspect I have been a part of the problem by the work I've done trying to help uh, get clear about what goals are and what uh, outcomes are. Always having to do something, but the culture is not doing something it's being. Yeah, it is. You know, don't just do something, stand there, you know, and, (laughs) and, you know, so it's far more important for people to know each other's names and to say, you know, hey, um, you know, how's the new baby? Is she sleeping through the night? And anything, you know, sorry to hear about your grandma who just died. And and it's it's ways of staying connected, you know. So people try to transform their pain so they don't have to inflict it anymore. And in the kind of the soft bed in, in which people can be seen as they carry such incredible weight is, you know, a place that cherishes and, and a culture that loves, you know, it's, it's about belonging, you know, a community trumps gang. And, and so we're not trying to achieve a behaving community, which is kind of part of the problem, you know, cause people have programs <laughs> cause they want people to behave better. And, and here we're sophisticated, I think, about behavior. It's just a, it's a language. So what language is it speaking? So let's try to understand that language. Let's try to speak that language. So our goal is not a behaving community, but a belonging one. You know, a community of beloved belonging. And, uh, and if the principle is everybody's unshakably good, and everybody belongs, and we belong to each other. Well, then that's the goal. That that's what you want to. Uh, that's what you want to achieve as best you can. And then you know, homeboy helps. And and of course, not everything that works helps, but everything that helps works. So you want to do the thing that helps. But it also, you know, you you want to stand for a larger love. You know that somehow homeboy wants to be the front porch of the house everybody longs to live in. So you want to, that helps for people to imagine something to kind of say, you know, it might look like this. You know, like today we just had, I don't know, it was probably 40 students from some, from some elementary school, very sweet kids, you know, but again, they were at the morning meeting and you could tell you get the vibe. People are singing happy birthday. People are laughing. People are, announcing, you know, Hmm. important things that happened to them. You know, somebody just graduated or somebody's five years sober or, you know, I got my kids back. And, and I looked at their faces and they were just, I knew, I I knew they, they got it on some visceral Mm -hmm. level. This is a place where everybody belongs and there are no demons and there's nobody disposable. Anyway, you know, I, I think it's important to kind of uh, not just do your thing, but announce. It's not just important to point things out. 
but communities should also point the way. Oh, okay, now I get it. Oh, we're supposed to, we shouldn't do that. We we should here's where the joy is. Okay. No, I don't know. It's a, then you kind of you're the finger pointing to the moon. You're not the moon, but yeah. But you're pointing to it. It's a powerful picture of that you paint of the culture that is in the that space. And and so Justin, I'm curious as you were doing your ministry in Houston and you were learning from from Father Boyle and from Homeboy in, Industries, like what did you take? What lessons? What sort of bones, if you will, did you, um, you know, take with you as you started that ministry? Well, again, I think the culture is is spot on because when we set about the work, what we were looking for was a set of tactics. All right. So what, mm. what are the wraparound <laughs> services that we need to offer? You know, this, that, and the other. Right. And then when we arrived at uh, Homeboy Industries. Now, this was about the same time as Tattoos on the Heart uh, mm-hmm. was being released. So this is how uh, Greg and I track how long we've known one another through the release of the book. And so we were still kind of reading it on the plane as we were heading toward uh, Homeboy for the first time. And what we came away with was this profound sense of the culture don't just look at the services, look at the language that's being used. Look at the approach toward the other person. And it reminded me, we got back home and and I was reminded of a sermon one of my pastors growing up had offered where he said, uh, behind the face of every person is the face of God and how you treat every person is how you treat God. And I And I looked at the crowd and I said, that's homeboy industries. That's what we mm. felt everywhere. So if we're going to replicate anything, let's replicate the culture. Let's learn the culture well. And so we we began to quickly adopt the language of kinship and try to figure out what kinship meant for us and how we could cultivate it among our volunteers, uh, between our volunteers and those youth that we were working with. Uh, in our congregational lives, because if 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 this was going to have um, uh, any effect more broadly, our whole congregation needed to be invested in this language, in this way of of thinking and journeying with uh, the other. And so, again, culture has been key. Mm-hmm. I'd, as a as a plug for uh, another homeboy related book, I think. The CEO of, of uh, Homeboy has just written a book called The Homeboy Way. And I think mm. it does a great job of talking about the culture for folks who are, have not been a part of the culture and just trying to figure it out. So, Greg, please tell Tom, thumbs up from us on it. We think he did a great job with it. That's great. I will. Nice, nice, nice. I, I want to um, move to our final question. Um, unless, Gil, do you have something that you want to well, I, it, I, I guess what I want to do is just reflect on something I'm, uh, I'm hearing and feeling in this conversation. And then, uh, Greg, invite you to offer anything you have about that. But in some sense, uh, 
if I were to look about me, I would look at uh, at a, a, a nation that is polarized, that is politicized, that is struggling with white racism, with white supremacy, that is, you know, bifurcated, that is, I mean, we can go on and, and talk all about that kind of stuff, so that when I come to the conversation with you and you're talking about working with gang members, I hear you describing an oasis, you know, a place that salves, uh, you know, um, among all these other isms and stresses that uh, that the world has has accepted for itself. And yet, I think that uh, the natural reaction would have been the other way around. That uh, you know, people where you are would want to get out. Um, yeah, I just it feels like a, just a wonderful reversal. Yeah, I, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that gang members have taught me everything of value. And so, you know, I, I probably used to think there was such a thing as good people and bad people until I met gang members. Mm. Mm. And I, I used to, you know, gang members have taught me that everything is about something else. So find mm. the something else. So, you know, otherwise, what you know, I, I would have just been denouncing gang violence. Right. But instead, it, I knew it was about something else. Yeah. It was about, it's not about what it seems to be about. Mm-hmm. And people are always doing that. You know, I'm going to denounce hate. I said, well, I don't know. I've never met a healthy person who hated. So maybe it's about health. Mm. And nobody's ever met an anti-Semite who's healthy, ever. You've never met anybody like that. Or a homophobe who was healthy, well, and whole. Never. Never. <laughs> and if that's true, then maybe you address these things by kind of loving people into health mm-hmm. and being attentive to, but otherwise it's, it's just all, you draw the lines instead of erase them. Mm-hmm. And, and Jesus wants us to erase the lines yeah, and, and allow us to have no daylight that separates us. And separation is an illusion, but, if I denounced all those things I just mentioned, it would be about me. And it would be about striking a high moral distance between right. us and them. And and I and gang members have taught me that that's kind of that's not what it's about, you know? And and gang members, you know, that that's what they engage in. They have enemies and they hate each other. But not for a second did I ever think it was about hate. Never. It's not about hate. It's an indicator. It's a symptom. It's pointing beyond itself to a lethal absence of hope. So address the despair and watch what happens to the violence. And I don't think there's a single thing out there. Otherwise, you know, Matthew Dowd, who wrote a good book, and in it he says he thinks that one-third of, of all Americans believe that do not believe that all men and women are created equal. And if that's true, and it may well be, now what do you do? Does that mean one third of the American people are bad people? No, nobody healthy holds that view. Nobody healthy or well or whole holds that view. You have to be a stranger to yourself if you mm. believe that not all men and women are created equal. So, so I think that's important, I think, because we name things incorrectly. We go down rabbit holes as opposed to saying where you start is where you end up. 
if you believe that everybody's unshakably good, no exceptions, and if you believe that we belong to each other, no exceptions, well, now you can roll up your sleeves. You don't have to demonize anybody. And, and then you're erasing lines rather than drawing them. And then suddenly, this is why we don't make progress, because we draw lines. And we think it's about morality, and morality has never kept us moral. It's just kept us from each other. And God's dream come true is that we, that we be one. So I'm going to hold out for that. May we all hold out for that, right? <laughs> yeah. Amen. Yeah. Amen. All right. I'm going to uh, close our time with one final question that we're asking everybody during this season. And so, Greg and Justin, I'll ask each of you, both of you, to, um, to, to just share your thoughts. So when you imagine the church, and think broadly, the body of Christ in this world, when you imagine the church 20, 30 years from now, you know, as these next generations um, are part of the church, what do you hope is true? Yeah, one of the things that um, uh, Greg says in um, his most recent book, uh, The Whole Language, is uh, he uses this um, image of the church of the future that's always moving toward us in the present. And so, Greg, if you're going to use this, I'm trying to beat you to it. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's that picture for me of the church gathered in the in the seventh chapter of the book of Revelation. Every tribe, tongue, language, everybody, everybody's there. And it's this church that, um, as uh, Greg has said, is without divisions. All of those walls have been taken down finally by Christ. And so if this church is in the future and it's always moving toward us in the present, my hope, as I think a generation from now, is that we'll have less dividing lines and not more. History has not always moved that way. Our our history has not always moved that way in the life of the church, but my prayer is that um, we would joyfully meet uh, this future picture of the church. Here, here. You know, I, I read something yesterday, uh, Brian McLaren, who I like, and, and he said, you know, we, we don't have to choose between uh, staying Christians compliantly or leaving Christianity defiantly. He says we can stay defiantly. And I love that. And all of a sudden I felt as I read that, I went, yeah, I, I'm, I'm with that. Yeah. And then he had, a, he had an expression, which I loved, which was occupy Christianity, which <laughs> I love that. I think that's actually exciting. And then all of a sudden I, I felt kind of, yeah, sign me up. Yeah, I can do that. I can do that. Yeah, occupy, <laughs> you know, so, so you stay defiantly. If mm. uh, Rosemary Ruther just died, and yeah. she, she was great, and and she was she stayed in the church defiantly because she thought the only way to kind of change it was from within. And here, here, I like that. Yeah. So I mean, it's 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 always a return to the marrow of the gospel, and sometimes people think, oh no, people are offended by the gospel, and they're. They're, they think the gospel's too hard. No, they're waiting for you to preach the gospel. They're longing for the gospel. Yeah. And it, and it may mean that, you know, we don't understand the gospel too well, but because <laughs> it, it's all pointing to joy. 
Well, may it be so. Thank you. Thank you. Guys, great being with you. Yeah. Uh, Greg, it's a pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much. Igniting Imagination is a production of the Leadership Ministry Team at Wesleyan Investive and Texas Methodist Foundation with excellent editing support from TruthWork Media. Check out our show notes and website for more information about all our guests and how you can follow them. I'm Blair Thompson-White, and from all of us at Leadership Ministry, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.